0: My professors at seminary had a daughter who, well into middle age, lived as an unbeliever. Frankly, she said she was an unbeliever, though she had professed faith in her childhood. And virtually, as he was dying, the Holy Spirit touched her heart, and the Lord brought her to Himself. So, there's no point where you give up. There's just no point where you give up. We don't know.
1: Welcome to the Crossway Podcast, a show where we sit down with authors each week for thoughtful interviews about the Bible, theology, church history and the Christian life. I'm Matt Tully, and today I'm talking with Dennis Johnson. Dennis is Professor Emeritus of Practical Theology at Westminster Seminary, California. After teaching New Testament for 16 years, he taught primarily preaching and ministry courses and taught in various countries in Africa, Asia, Europe, and Latin America. Finally, he's the author of a commentary on the book of Hebrews in Crossway's ESV expository commentary series. Today, Dennis and I discuss Hebrews 6 verses 4 to 6 one of the New Testament's most famous and debated warning passages, a section of scripture that many people think teaches that Christians can lose their salvation. He explains why he doesn't think that's what the author of Hebrews was saying, and whether or not we can be certain about our own salvation. Let's get started. Well, Dennis, thank you so much for joining us today on the Crossway Podcast.
0: Well, thank you for inviting me.
1: So at some point in life, I think most of us will know someone, maybe a friend or a family member or even a spiritual mentor who will turn away from what once seemed like a vibrant faith and maybe even going so far as to uh, leave their church or leave their family or maybe even renounce Christ altogether. Uh, And obviously this can be very destabilizing and confusing for those who are kind of left wondering what happened? What? what were the things that led to this, and what should we make of uh, this experience? And so I wonder if you've ever experienced anything like that in your years as a pastor or professor.
0: Well, I have. And um, actually, one thing that actually comes to my mind is as I've taught Hebrews over the years, I had a student some years ago who was a strong believer um but was troubled by his past because he remembered being a strong believer in his high school years and then renouncing what he professed to believe uh, in his college years and for some few years of his uh later I mean young adult life uh, and then and then the Lord brought him back and he he wondered if he had committed the kind of irreversible apostasy that Hebrews 6 talks about. Uh, so I think of him whenever I turn to this passage, um, because as I, obviously we don't know others' hearts, but as I saw him after that whole process, uh, his heart for the Lord was true. And I said, I don't, I don't know what was going on with you in your college years. I can't say, um, but from the fruit I see now, uh, I'm... Confident that you did not commit that form of apostasy that Hebrews six is talking about, from which it is impossible for people to be renewed to repentance. So, I've had that experience. Um, yes, I've also known, you know, people who have walked, it seemed, with Christ uh, and have turned away as well. And it's 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 heartbreaking. It's confusing, and as you said, it, it kind of makes us feel like what where did that come from and what did i miss or uh i i i feel that distress. i have felt it from time to time Yeah.
1: sometimes i think it's hard for us to know how to talk with someone who has fallen away from christ and uh, who, who once maybe was a strong believer as far as we could tell and now they have rejected him what practical advice would you offer to friends and family
0: i would say Quite often, we need to ask, um, and friends and family may know or may have a clue, uh, what is it about, frankly, Jesus' people that has hurt them in the past? Uh, what What are the scars that they have received from the church? Uh, that, And the church which they should be able, rightly, to identify with the Lord of the church, with Christ, but we sometimes send... Horrible signals about who our master is, in the way we treat one another. So you know, I think if if that's a cause, it's not the only cause, but if that's in their mind a cause why I don't follow Jesus anymore because the church has abused me, has wronged me, uh, is not it doesn't live up to what it claims to be, um, then I think. You know, friends and families who say, you know, you're absolutely right about the church. <laughs> we do fail, and we do in a lot of ways, and it's serious. And um, But what about Jesus? Can you make, can you make a, can you, in your own mind, can you make a distinction between what you've experienced in church and what the scriptures reveal about this amazing God, man, Messiah, compassionate, full of integrity, laying down his life for his people. Have, have, you, have you turned your back really on Jesus or have you turned your back on him because you associate him with the hurt that you've had in the church? I think that's one scenario. Another might be that they have just been exposed uh, somewhere along the line, maybe in university, maybe in their reading, to um, a ta- attacks on the reliability of the scriptures. Uh, Or they felt pressure uh, from our culture uh, to say, well, obviously things like miracles couldn't happen. Um, And so the approach for them might be a little different to say, you know, sometimes we need to push back against culture. Culture's not always been right. We know that past cultures haven't been right, but what about our culture too? Um, Maybe you should take a fresh look at this collection of books that claims for itself to be uh, the Word of the Living God, um, and and not just believe everything you've been told about it, but actually now go back to it afresh and and listen and, and again, wrestle with who Jesus Christ is.
1: Yeah, the Bible does contain uh, warning passages like those in Hebrews, Hebrews 6 in particular, and uh, some people have read those throughout the years as teaching that true christians can actually lose their salvation while others you know have other other explanations for how we should understand those passages i just want to read hebrews 6 4 to 6 right now and and then kind of maybe you can walk us through that and help us to understand what you think it's saying Uh, so hebrews 6 says uh, 4 to 6 says for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the holy spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. And I think to to many people reading that passage, it sounds a lot like the author of Hebrews is talking about a Christian losing his or her salvation and then it being impossible to... Uh, to gain that back. How would you read that passage? How would you respond to that that understanding?
0: Well, that certainly does, you know, as we think about words like enlightened, the Holy Spirit being part of their experience, um, it does sound like they're, you know, genuine believers renewed by the Holy Spirit. I think we need to keep in mind, let me, let me say, first of all, uh, that's not, I think, what this text is saying among other things, Hebrews is going to go on in chapter 7 to talk about the fact that Christ saves to the uttermost those who come to God through him. So the writer to the Hebrews uh, agrees very much, as we would expect, since he's writing inspired scripture through the Holy Spirit, agrees very much with what Jesus says in John 6 and John 10, that he will not lose any of those whom the Father has given to him, that no one can snatch his sheep out of his hand as Jesus says in that wonderful statement in John 10 um, he agrees with what Paul says uh, in Romans 8 uh, that those whom God has has predestined to be conformed to the image of his son he will he has called he's justified and he's glorified there's no loss there's no slippage in that process because God is faithful and God is strong so then we need to ask so what what kind of people are Uh, is Hebrews 6 talking about, since his point is not just that whoever these people are, they might fall away, but his point really is, if these people fall away from whatever they were before, whatever their position, relation with the Christian community, the Christian faith was before, it's impossible to renew them, to restore them to repentance. That's his point, that there is a a point of no return. Uh, What's he talking about? As I have wrestled with this text, uh, I'm persuaded that he's emphasizing that it is possible to be uh, a member of the Christian church, the Christian community, uh, and to be exposed to all the wonderful blessings that that entails uh, externally, we might say, temporally, uh, and yet not to have really Taken hold of what those blessings point to in Christ, not having truly trusted in Christ. Uh, They've been enlightened. They've heard the gospel. Uh, They have uh, tasted the heavenly gift. And then in, in a line or two later, he says they've tasted the goodness of the word of God. They've heard the word of God. Uh, which is the gift from heaven. Hebrews talks about God now preaching to us from heaven as he preached to the Israelites in the wilderness on earth. Uh, They heard his voice on earth. Now we hear through the preachers of the gospel, we hear uh, from heaven, God speaking. Um, Maybe the most puzzling is this line, they have become partners or partakers of the Holy Spirit. That word partners or partakers is the same word that he used when he was quoting one of the Psalms back in, in uh, chapter one about the companions of the Messiah, uh, those who have fellowship in general with the Messiah, and he's anointed above his companions. Um, and then he says they've tasted the powers or the miracles of the age to come. And the word powers there is the same word that he's used in chapter two for miracles. Well, that's a lot. Let me, let me put it this way. I think what he's saying is there are people who are in the church, who hear the gospel preached, and especially in the era of the apostles when the apostles were preaching and God was confirming their eyewitness testimony to the gospel um, through miracles. Uh, Paul talks about the signs of the apostle. There were people in that community who had all of the external blessings and benefits maybe even sounded and looked like a Christian, but who had not embraced the gospel, had not been united to Christ by saving faith, and it's possible for them to turn away. And if they do commit that kind of irreversible uh, apostasy, there, there's no return
1: for them. So you're saying this this passage is talking about people who have been, as you said early on, in the Christian community. So part of a visible Christian community, have then been witness to and even experienced the, the benefits and the blessings of being a part of that community. And then it's when they deliberately turn away from from God and the gospel uh, that that is, that's a situation that he's describing here. Is that, is that right?
0: That, uh, that's right. And, and I think what's helpful to us is to remember that Hebrews 6 comes after Hebrews 3 and 4 where he has drawn the analogy with Israel, the wilderness generation that came out with Moses and experienced many external blessings as part of God's old covenant community. And yet he said, for so many of them, the word that they heard was not blended with faith in these people. And so we, as we know, except for uh, basically Joshua and Caleb, that whole Exodus generation died in the wilderness and did not enter the promised land and he's using that as an analogy for the church now in this new covenant era he says it's possible uh to be part of the we might say the new covenant israel the church uh and hear the word but not have it blended with faith in our own hearts and and that's a that's a dangerous place to be in Lethal place to be.
1: Mm. Yeah, I think one of the most tricky phrases, even in this passage, that I'd love to hear you speak to specifically, is uh, when he says um, to restore them again to repentance. And that again seems to imply that there was a time when they did have repentance, and yet they've lost that somehow. And then he's saying it's impossible for them to regain that. Uh, but, you know, we see in scripture the idea of faith and repentance going together. And so how, how is it that these people are, uh, could have had repentance at one point, but it not be saving?
0: That is a great question. As we look at one another, uh, and as creatures who can't read hearts, uh, in, it looked in every way, shape, and form as if they had truly repented. When I think about that one, it, you know, I think about uh, the account of Simon, the magician, in Acts 8, when Philip preached in Samaria and uh, people heard the gospel. Uh, God, again, gave some miraculous signs there, even though Philip wasn't an apostle, but he was a representative of the gospel at that point. Uh, And many believed, and Luke records, Simon also believed. Um, And again, Luke is, is, I would say at this point, as a historian, not presuming to probe the depth of Simon's hearts, but he would We might be more careful today, (laughs) but Luke's writing Scripture, so he's writing truth, truth, but we might say he professed faith. He received baptism. Um, But then when Peter and John come, and Simon says, I want to buy the power to give the Holy Spirit, I mean, Peter says some things that I don't think anyone would, you know, as he looks at what's going on in Simon's heart, he says, you're not right with God, you're still in the bond of iniquity, um, he, he basically says, uh, you're going to hell and, and send your money with you. Um, so Simon, at that point, and, you know, Luke just records his final response saying, if you would pray, you know, Peter calls him to repentance, and then Simon says, pray for me that this won't happen. And we don't know quite what whether that finally got through to him or whether he's just terrified of consequences. But the New Testament can speak. That way at times, uh, describing people in terms of what they s- seem to be and maybe even see themselves as being at a particular point, um, a kind of a repentance. Paul talks at one point in Second Corinthians about a worldly repentance that's all about regret but doesn't bring life. Whenever I read that passage, I think about the difference between Judas and Peter, Kind of at the same moment in, you know, Judas betrays Jesus, Peter denies Jesus three times. Judas has a kind of, what we call it, repentance. It's not deep, but a regret that he, he knows what he's done is wrong and goes out and commits suicide. Uh, Peter is confronted by his failure to own up to the fact that he belongs to Jesus. But Jesus has prayed for him. And uh, well, Peter also feels deep grief, uh, it doesn't lead to ruin and death and suicide. It, it leads to restoration because of the faithfulness of, of Christ. So that's, I, I, you know, we wrestle with that. Uh, we wrestle with mm. that. But um, our Holy Spirit-inspired author-preacher here is wanting to make the point that it's possible to experience incredible blessings from God as a part of a covenant community uh, and yet not have that faith that endures. We can't take this text out of, you know, out of the rest of Hebrews 6. And he's going to go on in 6 through 12, uh, after he gives a little analogy that maybe maybe was drawn from Jesus' parable of the sower and the seeds. when he talks about one type of land that bears good fruit, another type of land that bears thorns and thistles and is destroyed. But then he such a sensitive pastor. It's a it's a scary warning. And then he says, "But we are persuaded about you, brothers, about better things, things that belong to salvation." And uh, and he's so the warning is not to terrify them, but to urge them to stick close to the Lord, to encourage one another. And then he comes to verse twelve, and he says, "Like we want you to be imitators of those who through faith and." patience, long-suffering, inherit the promises. So it's that faith that lasts that receives the promises and that proves then to be the genuine thing all along.
1: Hmm. Yeah, so why do you think it is that he teaches here that it's impossible for those who have experienced the the blessings of the covenant community uh, and then walked away to be restored back to that, I mean, I, I think many of us could probably think of, uh, even take the case of young people who grew up in the church. Their their families, their their parents were believers. Um, they made a profession of faith at a younger age, and and maybe flourished in uh, what seemed to be true faith in their earlier years, and then maybe in high school or in college, uh, walked away and got into things they shouldn't have been, and eventually ended up you know, saying, I'm not a Christian anymore. Is this passage teaching us that there's just no hope for them at that point, that they are beyond redemption in some way?
0: No, it is not teaching that. I mean, it is teaching that there is, in walking away from the faith, there is a point of no return, and you don't want to even get close to it. Um, But it is not teaching that you should give up, Because we don't know what God may yet do, and we don't, we can't read hearts. We don't know what's what's going on in other people's hearts. Um, Now, granted, Peter's repentance was quick after he denied Jesus three times. But the fact of the matter is, Jesus had said, "Anyone who denies me before men, I will deny before my Father in heaven." So we can't say that you know Peter's sin was minor. And Judas's sin was major. It was Peter's sin was major, and uh, and yet there was a place, obviously, in the grace of God for Peter's repentance. And I think we should always have that kind of hope. I had uh, one of my one of my professors at seminary had a, a daughter who, well into middle age, lived as an unbeliever. Frankly, said she was an unbeliever, though she had professed faith. in her her childhood, and uh, virtually uh, as he was dying, uh, as the family gathered, um, the Holy Spirit touched her heart and uh, her siblings rejoiced that uh, the Lord brought her to Himself. Mm -hmm. So there's no point where you give up. There's just Mm -hmm. no point where you give up, we don't know.
1: So what do you think uh, he means when he talks about that they're crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt uh, what's he getting at there?
0: Basically, what he's saying is they professed to rely upon the atoning blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross. Um, that that They professed that their forgiveness from God, their access to God, uh, now they were resting and trusting. That's what they said. They were trusting in Jesus Christ, no longer in all of those animal sacrifices that God had ordained in the Old Covenant that were intended, as Hebrews shows us so beautifully, to point to Christ. Uh, But now, presumably, especially for these Hebrew Christians, the temptation is to abandon their trust in Jesus the Messiah, and uh, whether through pressure of family or through other pressures to just identify with first century Judaism, to go back into the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. Uh, and he says if they do that, in a sense, they are saying that the blood of Christ is not the innocent blood of the Lamb of God, but it's simply the blood shed by one more criminal, one more sinner among all the sinners who deserved his own his own death. So in effect, they're identifying themselves with those who were glad to crucify Jesus. Uh, um, and and that's, he says it that way, obviously, because he believes that is what, it, what they are doing. You know, that's the effect of their action. But he's saying that way for shock value. He said, you really don't want to do that. You really don't want to do that. Um, because you're claiming that, that Jesus is a guilty sinner along the rest of us. And, and you, you know, you've heard better than that. You know, he is, Holy, harmless, undefiled, separated from sinners, separated in that he's not touched by the stain of our sin. Although he's obviously a friend of sinners, those that's all Hebrews language from chapter seven. He's the one innocent sacrifice who can atone for our sins. Uh, if you if you go away from him, there is no other place to turn for forgiveness.
1: How would you respond to somebody who hears your explanation of that passage, and Maybe feels a little bit like you're kind of doing a little bit of interpretive gymnastics to uh, make it mean something that it seems uh, like it doesn't mean. So more specifically, that it seems to be clearly teaching that someone can truly be saved and then lose their salvation because uh, maybe they've they've stopped believing in God and um, that was kind of their choice and now they are they're walking away. Um, How would you respond to someone who kind of says you're not taking the plain reading here and you're trying to fit this passage into your theological system that tells you that people can't lose their salvation once they have it?
0: As I read Hebrews as a whole, uh, not just these few verses, but the whole book of Hebrews, uh, do I come away with the impression that Hebrews wants me to understand that uh, ultimately, my salvation depends on my holding fast to the very end, apart from Christ holding me fast. Can Jesus let go? And I would say, let's start with Hebrews. Uh, and let's go to Hebrews 7, where it talks about Christ uh, being able to save. Interesting phrase. We To the uttermost, completely, uh, is it comprehensive or is it unendingly the the word that he used the word the phrase that he used there kind of both uh, because he's he's emphasizing the fact that jesus death brings once for all cleansing of conscience it never his death never needs to be replaced or repeated unlike the animal sacrifices of the old testament so those who receive the benefit of Jesus' death receive complete and full forgiveness. So he's able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. And, of course, in Hebrews 7, when he mentions that, he also says Christ is living forever to intercede for us. So if we truly trusting in Christ, Christ is always praying for us at the Father's right hand. And surely the implication is that the Father is more than pleased to answer the Son's prayers for our prayer perseverance. Um, Hebrews may even be tapping right into what Jesus said to Peter when Jesus announced that Peter would deny him, but Jesus said, I have prayed for you. So when you are restored, strengthen your brothers. So you start yeah. with Hebrews, um, but then don't take Hebrews 6, 4 through 6 out of, not only, don't take it out of the context of Hebrews, but let's not take it out of the context of the rest of the New Testament. Uh, And let's even hear Hebrews 6, 4 through 6 in the context of the pastoral reassurance that comes right after it. We are persuaded of better things concerning you, brothers. We're talking about the possibility that someone could be part of the confessing Christian church and not be truly united to Christ in faith. But that's not what we see in you, in this congregation that he wrote to in the first century. We see a track record of loving the Lord, of serving his people. Later in chapter 10, he'll say, You're, you've been, you've already suffered in some ways. Uh, hasn't come to bloodshed for you who are still alive. You haven't suffered martyrdom, but you've suffered loss of property. You've identified with those who've been humiliated. We see lots of evidence of real saving faith. Um, so take heart and be assured. Yeah, I think that's what I'd say. Mm-hmm. And, and I'd probably, mm-hmm. in love, gently push back and say, and now, if you read Hebrews 6 as saying that people can be truly, genuinely, savingly united to Jesus by faith and then walk away from it, now please help me understand then John 6 or John 10, or Romans 8, 28 to 30. How does that fit with the assurances that God gives us elsewhere that He holds on to His
1: own? So it's hard not to feel a certain amount of personal fear and even anxiety after reading a passage like this, or maybe even particularly watching a friend or loved one walk away from God. And I wonder, are passages like this meant to make us question our salvation? Is that the appropriate response? And if not, How should we deal with those feelings as we read uh, the Bible?
0: Yeah, I think I would not say that they're meant to make us question our salvation, Uh, although Paul in 2 Corinthians says, uh, test yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Uh, But I think he's doing that partly to the Corinthians rhetorically, to say there's a lot of stuff going on among you that doesn't look very Christ-like, so look at yourself. But the the point of, of a... Passages like these, I think it just fits in with Hebrews' whole emphasis on the fact that we persevere in our pilgrimage of faith. He he uses this imagery of, you know, the, the, the analogy of Israel's wilderness experience, putting them to the test, showing a lack of faith in so many, but they're heading for the promised land, heading for the city of God. We persevere together. And they think more than anything else, a passage like this, the, what our takeaway should be we need to be together, we need to stay together, we need to heed what the preacher to the Hebrews says in chapter 3, that if there's—we uh, we watch out that there be anyone be hardened in unbelief, uh, but we go out and uh, encourage one another daily. We need to be much—individually, we need to say, I, I need to be part of a Bible, vibrant Bible-preaching, Bible-living church that cares for one another and hold each other accountable. So we're known and be known. Um, And if I'm part of one of those churches, then I I need to be close enough to my brothers and sisters. Uh, If it's very large, I probably can't do that for hundreds, but close enough. So there's someone in our communion who, if someone begins to stray or wander, uh, or just seems to be absent, um, that we love them enough to go, after them in love and say what's going on Uh, so it's it's really more than anything to encourage us to realize that god's means of holding on to us certainly is his word certainly his prayer certainly sacrament but it's all those things that come to us in the context of our life together as as christ's people as the church
1: Well, thank you, Dr. Johnson, for taking the time to speak with us today and help us all understand this passage in particular, and then just the broader uh, issue of uh, whether or not we can lose our salvation a little bit more clearly and offer us some real hope and practical advice for the future.
0: Thank you for the opportunity, Matt. It's really important issues,
1: so I appreciate being able to, to chat with you about them. That was Dennis Johnson on whether or not Christians can lose their salvation. For more, be sure to check out his commentary on Hebrews in Crossway's ESV expository commentary series, available online or at your local Christian bookstore. For more interviews like this, subscribe to the Crossway Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review, which helps us spread the word about the show.